Hi, Alan. Hi, Maria. Okay, I don't see you. I haven't turned my on yet. It took me a while to come in. I don't know why. All right, there we are. <laughs> are we the only two? I think. Wow. So how are you? How's your family? Everybody's good. Thank God. I'm glad to hear that. Can't believe this weather. Oh, my. These are bonus days we have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yes. <clears throat> oh, somebody's trying to come in. Nobody from the church. That phone number? I don't know. It's not the church's phone number. No. Hello? <laughs> I didn't get, usually I get an email that says join us for Bible study. I didn't get that today. And I usually hear from Linda, but I didn't hear from her. She's always there early. Wow. Let's just check. Good morning, St. Nicholas. This is Cynthia. How can I help you? Hey, Cynthia Allen. Hi, Alan. What can I do for you? Are we having Bible study today, do you know? Father just went down. He went. Okay. Very good. All right. Thanks. No problem. Bye, Bye. Alan. Bye. Might just be the two of us. Uh he went. Here he comes. He he's he just Susie, left here too. Good morning. Morning, everyone. Good morning. Yeah. There we are. We're here. Welcome, We're here. Mr. Reinveld. Yeah, thank you. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to our happy little club. We are a happy club, yes. Thursday Warriors. Thank you, last week. Indeed. We got canceled. I was here, but then I. Yeah, I walked in and go, oh, just canceled because of Father. Yeah. Alliance. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, there was actually somebody else. I was on the way here. I was going to make it on time. Then I called and go to a different hospital for somebody else. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> Thank God everybody's good. All right. All right. Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who love us mankind, the pure light of the divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understand the gospel teachings. Implant in us all to the fear that blessed commandments, that trampling down all common desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as well pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies of Christ our God, and to thee we ascribe glory, 
together with thy Father is everlasting, then all holy, good, and life giving spirit, now and ever, to the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. How is Father Elias doing? He's doing really well, thank God. Good. I haven't spoken to him. I've spoken to Mary in the last couple of days. I call, he's been napping, but that's good. He means he's resting. But thank God. Yeah. It's a miracle. It's just a miracle. It always is. Oh, Maria, that was the Mer piece that was on. Hi, you guys. Mer, that was the Murphys that were calling in. Susie. Hi, Susie. Hopefully will join us. Hi, you guys. Hi, Susie. Want to see are you. you? <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's a cute but thing. You're God willing, we're going to go this afternoon to Grand Valley. Yay, we got a big group. I know. Alan, Alan, you should come. I am. I am. Oh, good. Good. It's our biggest sport has been four days ago. What are you going to do there? They're, they're, they're giving a lecture. Yeah. Oh. So I wanted to, to start with a comment. It was a thought that came to me uh, this morning. Um, and it's really to understand the power of the scripture. Um, today, I don't know if it's a majority, but a, whoops, is it locked? <laughs> okay, <laughs> thank you. Um, if not the majority, a growing number of Christians attend what we call non-denominational churches. Yeah. Now, what that means is that they have no historical. See if there's one in the drawer there. If not, we can grab one from the library. There used to be a stack here. The stack is gone. <laughs> you want to? Very good, sure. Thank you. So. And this is where, again, I, my guess is it's a, a majority. And even the what we used to call the mainline Protestant churches, the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, um, the Baptists, more of them, if even though they're still within their denominations, in many ways, they've taken on the traits of the non-denominational churches in terms of style of worship, the way they're organized, the uh, the in almost almost every way and and one characteristic is that they rely solely on the bible for their teaching the the answers they're trying to get understanding who god is and all that now we're going to say as orthodox and the catholics can say the same thing in a similar way that our tradition connected to the life of the early Christians who were taught directly by Christ was the context that we have within which we read the scriptures and that the scriptures now, in a sense, rule us and their primary role as, as the candidate, the ruler, the measuring stick of, of God's revelation. But think about this. We, the Orthodox Church has been around for 2,000 years, more than 2,000 years now, and Churches that do not pay any attention to church history, have no regard for it, have no you know, meaningful need for it. Their goal is 
what does God want us to do? And it's in the Bible. Even though there are substantial differences, there's remarkable agreement. There's remarkable continuity, despite our differences. And that's only due to the power of Holy Scripture. Yes, we interpret it differently. Yes, we have different emphases because we don't have the same context that we read it in. However, the similarities, I think, are more remarkable than the differences. Um, which is again, a testament to the power of, of scripture. So I just wanted to, to open with that thought. So we had a, a comment that was made, we're talking about a Sunday school class or a child's class, I should say, on this very topic of, of Sola Scriptura. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that was brought up was you hear people of the Protestant churches will go over to <clears throat> old country, bring their Bibles, and then kind of walk through the, um, you know, Christ's past. What was he doing? There? Right. So the, the, the scripture came to life, they said, and it felt so much different, um, which I think is a different way of saying, then what about it, the history? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're missing that because they don't pay attention to it. But those right. that take and travel over there, they go... Well, it just brings everything to light. Well, yeah. we already have that. Right. And yeah. it, it's kind of interesting how that all plays in. Yeah. Um, yeah, the scripture is there, but then they see the history. Right. And then it makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah, we have it. I was talking to one of our inquirers about worship. Because there's somebody who had come right before Holy Week last year, and they were saying how that was such a powerful experience. They had heard the story of Christ's suffering and his crucifixion, resurrection. But he should understand why it affected him the way it did. I said, well, it's the context. You're not just hearing it as narrative or hearing it as entertainment. If you watch a movie or whatever, you're hearing in the context of worshiping. There's a living connection to the Christ that did all that way back when. But you're interacting with him now because that's what worship does. It's our connection to God now. Um, so, yeah, you're right. We, we encounter it. The other thing that's really interesting is when you go to the Holy Land and God willing, someday we'll get to go as a group, as a church. The Orthodox that are there, which are a really small amount of the pilgrims are Orthodox, but they're easy to spot because the other clergy are dressed. When they go into these holy sites, whether it's Bethlehem or the sites of Jerusalem. It's not a surprise because they go into Orthodox churches. <laughs> So you walk in and you see the iconostas, you see the icons, you see the design, the domes and all that. Um, for others, you can see that they're a little uncomfortable. It's They want to go to the holy site, but they're uncomfortable being in a church like that. It's it, If you had asked them, they'd probably say this feels Catholic to us. You know, This is not the kind of Christianity they're used to. But they have to deal with it because that's where those sites are. Now, in some cases, it's really interesting. Um, if you go to Jerusalem today, and I think for the last 30 or 40 years, maybe more, um, and you want to go and be on the spot where Christ resurrected, you're directed to one of two places. If you go where the church historians and the archaeologists would tell you where it probably happened, you go to what the Catholic Church calls the Church of Holy Sepulcher. We call the Church of the Resurrection. And it's a church and you go in and it's you go and you see what our churches look like. There is a place also called the garden tomb. 
and it's in a garden. It's in a in a sort of it's in there's a field and there's trees and there's the tomb and there's the big stone. And you feel like, oh, I'm at the spot. Because what you've imagined when you're in the scripture, but nobody thinks he rose from the dead there. <laughs> it's almost like Disneyland. It's like it's a simulated experience so that you can feel like you're walking in history. But if you really want to walk in history where he did it, you end up in churches, Orthodox churches. So that isn't real? That grave no. with the stone? No, it was, it's, it's a set. So Somebody, people can go to Jerusalem and feel like somebody put it there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's not cool. Yeah. That's but, bad. but if you if you're looking to fulfill an experience and you're a Protestant, going into the Orthodox Church doesn't do it for you. But that other one would? Yeah. Because imagine like, you read it and you go, he was at, you know, and they she met the gardener, and you imagine, you know. Yeah. Oh, I but they yeah. built the church on the site. Yeah. Yeah, that's the difference. So they build yeah. it on the site. It's inside a church, so there is no stone. Right. You don't see the garden. You're inside. You're not outside. So underneath the church maybe is where it was? No, it was there. Um, but you're in a church. Everything. And now it's all it's all structures built on the site. You don't see what would have been there. Um, I would have never known that unless you said that. Yeah. So you walk in, and it's like walking into our church. You're like, I'm in a church. How do I know this is special? Well, there's a special place. There's all these candles lit around it, but it's not like what you picture in your mind when you read the scriptures. Okay. So think about the hill that Jesus was crucified on. When you want to go see that, you go into the same church where the, the tomb was. And if you go to the left and go around, you go to the building over the site of where the tomb was. It was long since destroyed by the Muslims and rebuilt this little structure. Or you go to the right and you go up the stairs and you're you see an icon of Christ on the cross, and you look down to the glass box and there is a white stone. So there you are, you're inside a building, you've gone up the stairs, but you're still inside, and it's not again what your mind imagines. You think of Calvary, but what did the Christians do? They enshrined those places so they could worship there. But again, the mind that says, well, I want to experience what the what the Bible says, that's not what you imagine. You don't imagine an Orthodox church. Uh, it's the difference, perhaps. It's the difference, perhaps, between going to a museum and going to a church. A museum, you see artifacts and not in their original location, but they've been repositioned. And if they go to the church, it's where it was, and they have to accept that. And one thing about history, you have to submit to it. Yeah. You know, it, you can't change history, and you have to submit to it. You have to accept it. And obviously, they've pre presented something else like museums and, you know, the secondary location to satisfy a totally different need. That, that's a good point. But my guess is they would look at our churches and to them, that would look like a museum. It doesn't look like okay. what they imagine. It looks like it's not the original. It's been taken out of its context, put in this holy looking setting. And now you have what my guess is will look like a museum. Father. I think I just said, Kathy's going to say something. I have an old neighbor who actually lost her faith because of the the it all seems staged. Yeah. 
She was looking for something authentic yeah. and didn't see it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's where again, submitting to scripture, it's it's what we want to do. We want it to say what we want it to say. But when you submit to it, like, you know, since you're saying submit to history, submitting to scripture in the same way, it will change you because it's God. It's going to change you based on the truth that is unchanging. But Amen. all don't want to change. <laughs> None of us want really to change. Yeah, go ahead, Maria. Yeah, so James and I and some of our church people did go to the Holy Land. And it's interesting because the Holy Sepulchre kind of houses different faiths. As you said, yeah. the Catholics have a, a large church and you have to go upstairs for the Orthodox. Um, there's a huge silver crucifix and we were each told to go under like a holy table to pray. Yeah. That's a different feeling than, you know, reading the scriptures. Right. But still get the same you know you're in awe that it all took place here maybe it's right. exact spot by the inch but you're still on what we would consider holy ground the yeah. whole experience is just amazing yeah and not to get too far off on the tangent of the the church itself there but that particular spot i i never really understood like, where was Jesus crucified? We know it was outside the city wall. Um, and what they tell you, and, and archaeologists are all in agreement, that outside of the wall of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, um, there was a very big area that had been quarried for limestone for the temple, for the walls, for a lot of the, the buildings. Um, and specifically around the time of Herod, the same Herod that was around when Jesus was a baby. Herod the Great. In fact, he had a very distinct way. He wanted folks to know what was built under his reign. So his, his buildings are fine. All of the stones have a raised rectangle inside the like the square of the block. And then inside that a few inches is a little bit that protrudes out. It's very distinct. They call it the Herodian style. So anyway, um, that area that had been quarried for centuries, you can imagine being quarried, it's going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Apparently, that's where some people, rich people, could um, purchase graves because, you know, Middle Easterners didn't always bury down to the ground. They buried in caves. You found a cave, and then you excavated out little places in the cave. Okay. So they showed us where... Um, I don't know, like a model. It's almost like a bowl. But imagine in a bowl, but there's a part that, not the very bottom, but kind of from the side that juts out to the middle. So it's like, imagine a bowl, but there's like this part sticking out right into the middle, but it's sort of on the side near the bottom. And they said that was a, there was a part of that quarry where the rock had a crack in it. And so they couldn't quarry it because if you went to go quarry and cut a block out of it, the block would fall apart. So the, the, where that crack was, you, it was just they quarried all around it. That's where they think the crucifixion happened. It was on this thing sticking up 
And if you look at the stone, you can look this up on the internet if you can see it. It's white, it's white limestone, and it looks like bone. And so this idea of being the place of a skull, you can kind of see where, oh, okay, that's where, that's why they would say that. Well, there was also, by the way, outside the main busy part of the city, there's another place where they call it Calvary. It is a hillside. It looks like a skull and people go there for pilgrimage. Again, nobody believes that that was in, in the first century, nothing would have been happening there. But anyway, it satisfies people's. <laughs> so again, just quickly, I'll, I'll let you. The, that crack and that stone was literally the stone that the builders refused. And there's that verse, the stone that the builders refused, refused has become the headstone of the corner. So literally the stone where Christ was crucified on was the stone the builders rejected. And then more interesting, you find out, because in that same building, Maria, you, did you go down to the chapel of St. Adam? Oh, you're, you're muted. You're on mute. I'm back. Yes, we went through the entire building. Okay. So when you, you go, you can go up to Calvary, you go back down to the main level, then you can go down to this cave below the stone of Calvary and below the main level below Calvary. And that's what they call the chapel of St. Adam. It is where um, some of the Jewish tradition had it that Adam was buried. So I don't think we have in here an icon of the crucifixion. Next time you see an icon of the crucifixion, look on the hill that Jesus is being crucified on. And at the base of that hill, you'll see a skull. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think that's just a symbol of death. It's actually a symbol of Adam. So you had the new Adam who is offering himself as redemption and new life to all of humanity represented by the old Adam who, interestingly enough, is supposed to be buried in that spot below. So, and then you think, okay, what they, you know, it was a garden. Well, think about it. You got a bowl in the ground. It's been there for centuries. Dust flies in. Things start to grow. So it was probably just this big overgrown area. And that's where. Is the crack on the stone because of, you know, the kind of earthquake thing that was going on? Well, or was that... I don't know. Well, no, it had to be before because yeah. it had it was that's why it was rejected. Okay. That's why they yeah. left it there. Yeah. Previously. Yeah. Yeah. You had a question. Yeah, I just wondered when they crucified other people, what happened to those people's bodies? I mean, where did they put them? Did, like the other thief that didn't go to have them? I didn't. Yeah, I don't know. I know Potter, well, we know Potter's that. field. What's that? Like a potter's field where Judas, Judas went if they were poor. Yeah. You we know, know they took his money to buy another field. So they probably had other fields but like they that. They just dumped them. They didn't bury them. Or them. They probably would have buried them. But if you wanted to, you know, we think of like you go to a cemetery. Their cemeteries weren't pieces of ground. It was a hillside with a, with a cave. So they were throwing them in the cave? Well, that's if you could afford that. Yeah. Otherwise, you just got thrown. I guess. Well, probably buried. They wouldn't leave you out because it wouldn't be healthy for the people around. But well, nothing was healthy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's it? What's where uh, Judas okay. is? Isn't it something? The blood, blood. Yeah, the field of blood. He called it. Uh -huh. 
Anyway, all right. Anthra. Let's get into you. And I believe we are chapter 1233. Is that correct? Right. All right. And because it didn't start here. Let's go back and remember where we were just the section before. Remember we talked about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. Man, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever says a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in the age of age to come. That's the context that we go into this week. So would somebody volunteer to read for us 33 to 37. Rob. <laughs> Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 33 to 37. Okay. 33. Huh? 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasures brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of, of it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Okay. So first- That's a very powerful passage. <laughs> yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Frightening, isn't it? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep, it should be, we should be frightened. Now, let's look at this in context. Knowing what we just read last week and studied, why, what is this in context? Why is he going to this? Is he changing the topic? Or what, what is this about based on the context? Look at the 10 verses before that we looked at last week, the whole... By Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Yeah, so so the Pharisees were saying that uh, Jesus healed the man um, by Beelzebub, the devil. And um, so then uh, Jesus, uh, because he knew their hearts, launched into this, um, this speech. So what's the topic? If you had to give a topic on this, or a title or a heading, what would you label 33 to 37? Watch what you say. Seems Watch like that. Keep, that's that's keep, what he's getting. Keep your heart. Keep your heart. Maybe. If you're a good person, but bad things come out of your mouth, let's say, then you're not really a good person. Is he saying that, that, that can He's saying, watch your heart first. What you have in your heart's gonna come out of your mouth, good or bad. 
you can say you're doing good things, but what are you really doing? Yeah. Okay. So he's getting to the reality of it, right? And in the context of the 10 verses before, the context is specifically, is Jesus good? Remember, he logically talked about a kingdom divided against itself. Um, there was all that, you know, how would I, if I'm um, casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. So he's continuing that topic. And the topic is knowing good from evil. Right. And the context is, how do you know, basically, is he good? Now, it doesn't mean you can't apply it to other things, but we don't want to, to uh, cut it off from what happened before because we will we'll understand less. We want to understand more. So when he says either make the tree good and it's fruit good or make the tree bad and it's fruit bad, is he talking about making trees? No. No. It's no. Not about us. What's he talking about? That we bear fruit. Us, us, the people. Either you be good or be bad. Right. Well, he's saying you, you either are good or you, you aren't, aren't bad. bad. And so you label it properly. And how do you label it properly? How do you know if it's good or bad? By its fruit. By, there you by how we live. Okay. So there's going to be an outward expression. And he's going to go, he's going to hit him really hard on a couple, from a couple angles. You can't call what's good, good, or bad, bad, unless the fruit agrees with it, right? Where he says, and he says the next phrase, the tree is known by its fruit. You can't call it an orange tree if it's giving you apples. If it's, an, if it's giving you apples, it's an apple tree. If it's giving good fruit, it's a good tree. Make sense so far? Sure. Okay. Uh -huh. Now... Now he's going to turn the tables a little bit, right? Because they were talking against him, right? He had, he had cast out the demons. They're the ones saying to him, it's by Beelzebul. And then he's, you know, he's making his argument. Now he's going to turn the tables. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what's he, what's he calling into question? What they what they are or what they're saying? Do what they're saying. Yeah. So in other words, there and remember who he's talking. To, these are the Pharisees. This is like talking to bishops, right? So he says to them, "How can you speak good when you're evil? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth evil." So that's the context, because that's a very, 36 and 37 are frightening, we're going to get to it, but I want us to understand the context. Actually, understand the context is even more frightening, but we got to deal with what he says. So you're getting the whole thing about he's trying to get to how do you know if I'm good or bad, and how we're going to know if you're good or bad. It's by what you say or what you do. It's the fruit. It's what it produces. The, um, the insult is pretty shocking. How uh, so? Uh, well, uh, he's uh, calling them a brood of vipers. He's likening them to the lowest of animals. What, is it a low animal? Oh, I don't know. 
it's it's low to the ground. It's it's yeah. associated with the the fall. It's associated with um, deception. Okay, so yeah, and this is where you're 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 getting it. Snakes aren't the way I think of snakes in the in the biblical sense. Snakes, in my view, shouldn't be around. Like I don't like them. Mm -hmm. They scare me. I just I don't understand why we have snakes. So, but in the biblical sense, if you look at how serpents are treated, they're not bad, right? Uh, in in the and the people of of, of the the Hebrews are coming out of bondage in Egypt across the wilderness. The snakes come. Moses makes a bronze image of a serpent to hold up, and it protects him against the serpents. And the staff that the bishop has, does that have? Yeah. One of them does. And one. Jesus says, right, be wise as serpents. So they're very smart. They're smart but they're sneaky. They're very smart. Yes, they can be very sneaky. Because, again, wisdom is you can have the wisdom to know what to do and do it, or you can have the wisdom know what to do and you don't do it. The real talk right here, I was thinking about in the book of Revelation, the serpents are, you know, depict the devil. Yeah, and even the devil, if you think about it, sometimes we read the book of Job, we're, we're confused that God is interacting with Satan on a sort of respectful level. He's the enemy, but it's not like, uh, it's almost like, okay, you're, you're going to have your chance at these people. You, you do what you're going to do with Job, and, but it's not like, don't, don't think of it as, as a snake is pure evil because it's a snake. It's smart, right? And why are we afraid of snakes? They're dangerous. Yeah, they can hurt you. They can kill you, depending which ones they are, right? Mm -hmm. So they're smart and they can kill. He's calling them a brood of vipers. <laughs> and then listen to what he says after that, right? Um, Meaning they could kill people spiritually if they're not teaching the right thing or doing the right thing. They're dangerous. They're He's dangerous. not really getting into the detail, not, yeah. not elaborating. But the again, think of the context. He's He's turning their accusation... <laughs> To him that he's evil, which didn't make sense, because what started the whole thing? Go back to verse um, 22. What starts this whole dialogue is this man who can't see or speak is healed by Jesus. Obviously a good thing. Healing is good. Nobody's going to argue healing is a bad thing. Healing is a good thing. Who did the healing? Jesus. Therefore, what he's been saying in the previous section from 22 on, and then we'll look at today. If you are smart and fair, you can't say a good thing happened from a bad thing. Bad things produce bad things. Good things produce good things. So if you had been open to what, and just being fair about it, you wouldn't call me evil. You wouldn't call me Beelzebub because I did a good thing. Now he's going to turn it around. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? How do, what's the answer to that question? How can you speak good when you're evil? You can't. <laughs> well, that's, 
You can because that's what we call a hypocrite. There you go. Okay, so you could act good, you could pretend, you could, you could call yourself good, but when you are evil, how can you speak good? You can't. This is a lot of people say, well, what should I come to church for? It's just a bunch of hypocrites. Mm -hmm. And we acknowledge that we're sinners. Yeah. You know, that doesn't mean you're a hypocrite, but yeah. you're working on it. Yeah. But that's why a lot of people stay away from the church. Yeah. It might be an excuse, but you hear that a lot. Father John Salem, who's in uh, St. Elijah, Oklahoma City, um, he will not chrismate his people that, that, and they get a lot of people coming to that church. They're growing like gangbusters. Um, he, he says he won't chrismate them until they explain to him that they understand that this church is full of hypocrites. Because <laughs> then they're ready. Yeah. Because they don't see that, then when they see it later on, they're going to be surprised. It'll be excused to go, well, I don't want to be with these people anymore. Oh, you're all <clears> hypocrites? <throat> okay. You mean those people? Apparently, yeah. Apparently, I'm one of those people. <laughs> now you can come in. Now you're welcome. Now you're one of us. How okay. They, how do yeah. they make them understand? Father? You hang around and you see it. <laughs> no, but then they have to tell him that? Well, they uh, say they tell them, like, yeah. okay, I see it now, and yeah. I still want to be here, and I want to use. Are they giving examples? I don't think yes. Oh, yeah. God. <laughs> what was that, Susie? So you said if you're a bad person, you can't speak good. It doesn't work that, in the reverse. That's the answer to the question, yeah. If you're a good person, you, you can't speak bad. It doesn't work in the reverse. No. Well, it, it does work. And he says it. Keep keep going. Um, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you can speak good. You well, you can think you're speaking good, but if the abundance of your heart is evil, then whatever you think you're doing doesn't matter because you're speaking evil, or vice versa. And then he's going to clarify even more. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth good. Evil man out of evil treasure brings forth evil. Abundance. Rick said the Same key thing? word is abundance there. Meaning what? Your heart full of good. How much is your heart full of evil? Yeah. So if I'm if I'm boiling hot water and I have it near the top and it starts to boil and it spills out, wine isn't spilling out, milk isn't spilling out, orange juice isn't spilling out, water spilling out. Because that's it's it's coming out of what it, it's it's the abundance of what it is that's going to come out. In other words, it doesn't matter what you think something is, whether it's of yourself or somebody else. Right? Make the tree good, it's fruit good, or make the tree bad, it's fruit bad. You can't you can't have it both ways. Why? Because a tree a tree is known by its fruit. Now, here comes the prescription. All that was description, right? Now, here comes the prescription. I tell you, on the day of judgment, men will render account for every careless word they utter. Who has a different translation for that? I do. 36. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. Okay, so here's idle word. Careless, idle. Anybody have a different one? I should put mean. 
What's that? They should put mean in there, M-E-A-N. Well, it's Maybe. not just mean because it might not sound mean, but it might be idle yeah. or careless. Yeah. Mean is at least you kind of, it's more obvious. <clears throat> that, that would be easier if it was mean. <laughs> <laughs> because if it's an idle word, what's an idle word? Those people. Gossiping. Gossip, probably. Well, what, but in, when your car is idling, what is it doing? It's, they're not moving. It's not moving. All right. So there's no, there's no neutral. There's no um, zero. It's either positive or negative. You're, you're, it, there's no nothing. It's going to do something one way or the other. Um, mine translates it careless. If you think about it, careless in a sense of I didn't care enough to put meaning into it. Like I just said, you know, we saw, I said, well, I was just talking. I, was, I just said that. I didn't mean that. Well, so that's a careless it. word. You said it. Right. And out of the abundance of the mouth speaks. What was that? I feel like we need to drill down in confession now. I feel like this teaching is just drilling us down. <laughs> yeah. To down to word. what? Down to what? I think it's down to, be to accountable be everything God, we accountable say. And obedient. But even deeper than that, Susie, look at what he's saying. Are the words the problem? The heart. The heart. The heart. Okay. Why, why is the heart the issue, not the words? Because the words came from the heart. Right. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But in, so, the, in the footnotes, Father. In the footnotes of the study Bible, it says the heart in scripture refers to the center of consciousness, the seat of the intellect and the will, the source from which the whole of spiritual life proceeds. When grace permeates the heart, it masters the whole and masters the body and guides all actions and thoughts. When malice and evil capture the heart, a person becomes full of darkness and this and spiritual confusion. Yeah. And do you remember when we started the study of Matthew, we said the heart was going to be an issue that Jesus was going to go back over and over and over again. Remember back to the Sermon on the Mount. Um you know, don't don't uh, do your good works and then tell it to people. That's an outward expression. Your heart, it's 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 what spirit you're doing it in. You're not doing it to be seen by me. You're doing it because it's a good thing to do. You're doing it out of out of a loving heart. So this is where, again, when I said this is more frightening, this is why. You might say, well, you know, I don't say anything bad to anybody. Well. Stopping the saying is a good start. What Jesus is going to say is, where's your heart? Is your heart good? You might be able to button your, your mouth, and that's a good start. But if you're, if you're buttoning your mouth on an evil heart, you're not there yet. You can fool yourself, but you can't fool God. Yeah. And in fact, what he's really saying is, you can't even button your mouth that much. Eventually, it's going to come out. <laughs> At some point in time. Yeah. Or floor. Yeah. Boil over. Yep. And it's interesting that he doesn't use mm -hmm. words like he uses idle. 
and care or care. You know, yeah. um, he's looking for an, an intentionality. That's it. And an active one. Yes. It's not an absence of evil. That's a good start. It really is positive. Uh, I always can tell in people who are not used to confessing and they come and I, and I give them credit for coming because it's better than not coming, but they'll say what they didn't do. Mm -hmm. Father, I haven't robbed any banks. I didn't kill anybody. You know, I've been faithful to my wife. Well, I look a little bit, but you know, I haven't done anything. So I look they tell you all the reasons what they haven't done. And I've tried to be kind. And, well, that's good. That's good. You know, I'm glad you didn't kill anybody. <laughs> good summer. But I want them to get to is, but what is there in your actions and in your heart that needs to come out? We're going to talk later on. Or did we already do it? Did we talk about the um, the wheat and the tares? I don't think we got to that yet. I can't remember. So we'll get to that in terms of like, you, you got to pull it out. You got to get all this stuff out. I think this is a, a very profitable section. It's mm -hmm. very important. First of all, he's calling the Pharisees brood of vipers, and then he's calling them evil. Yeah. I think that's pretty important. And um, and then he says that we're going to be accountable for every idle word we speak in the day of judgment. Mm. Yikes. Mm. Yikes yeah. is right, Elaine. Yeah. Well, and you remember how we, at the very beginning we talked about how Matthew, it's the first book of the New Testament. It's going to set the tone and the pace and the, the basis, the foundation for the rest of it, right? Um, this is where the people that look at the New Testament versus the Old, as in the Old Testament, Jesus was mean, or God was mean, and God all his requirements, but now in the New Testament, Jesus did it all for us. Now, we are going to say on the one hand, did he do it all for us? Yes, he did. But that doesn't come without some kind of a expected response. And this is where, again, Christianity is, it's not what I would say the majority of Christians think it is. I think the majority of Christians, in my opinion, I could be wrong, see Christianity as a really good deal. Jesus came, and whatever, however you think of the crucifixion and the resurrection, he paid the price, and and now I'm free, and he, and he took care of everything, and that's all true. But when you read the scripture, that's not where the story ends. That's where it begins. Right. Then he says, and what about you? What are you going to do now? Right? Mm -hmm. what, what about confession? So you think about the burden of every idle word or thought or deed. Um, when you go to confession, can't you you can confess that? Mm -hmm. Do you have to start over and confess that again or no once no that's that's take care of the first 10 years and then the next 10 yeah. years right <laughs> yeah the beauty of confession is is you get a new start but again this is where people can mistake it i think you know when we don't have an understanding of something sometimes we invent a meaning and i remember as a kid maybe some of you remember this i don't know if it happened here but 
in some of our churches, people would line up before liturgy. The priest would put the stole on your head, make the sign of the cross, and you moved along, and the next one came up. So right. it was confession without confession. Yeah, the group group confession. Yeah, which other oh, people yeah. would call that magic. <laughs> the priest gave me the whammy. He, he made his little, he waved his little wand, his hand, his stole, whatever. That's not the gospel, obviously. When you read Jesus' words, that, that doesn't make any sense compared to what he's saying. That's no different than going to a priest like Father Dan that couldn't hear. <laughs> and, then, and then you confess to him, and I don't think he heard a word, but well, then he forgave you. You felt, oh, but gosh, as long as you like, said, that, is that real? As or? long as you said it, as long as you confessed everything. And so, to answer your the question, no, you didn't hear it. Because confession, what the scripture will tell us in other areas, especially in the epistles um, and then in the Psalms, confession undoes the damage of the sin. To you. What's that? To you. Not necessarily to, if you killed somebody, that the person doesn't. Yeah, well, I should say, let me distinguish. It, it heals the, the guilt. It doesn't necessarily remove the damage. Mm -hmm. So, and this is where some people get confused. They confess something and either they're still tempted by it or they're still bothered by an effect of a previous sin and they confuse that with God not having forgiven them. And then sometimes I spend more time in confession reminding people what they should not be guilty about as they say, as hearing what they are guilty about. And what I say to them is you confess that already. You might still feel guilty, but that's up to you now to catch up to where God is having already forgiven you the last time you confessed. So Sometimes we've got to work harder on receiving forgiveness, not just not sinning again, but receiving it and realizing, as we say in the, um, the one of the Psalms, I can't think of which one it is, but as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I think what Kathy was saying too, or at least they were getting the, the idea is that if you hurt someone, whether you know, say by something you said, you can ask for forgiveness when you go to confession, but it's almost going back to that person and asking for forgiveness too, to be yeah totally healed because you hurt that person. And based on what we're reading, why would that be true? Based on the reading. Say you're going to do something and then you do it. From your heart. From your heart. Your heart changes. Man. Your heart does. Yeah, if you're really sorry for what you did, you're not going to avoid that apology. You're going to seek it out. I'm, I'm fascinated by the movie Groundhog Day <laughs> because at each iteration of the day, he changes a little bit. Yes. And he seems to have reflected over the previous day and uh -huh. be, his heart changes yes. throughout the movie. Yeah. yeah. I hadn't thought of that, but the insurance salesman. Uh, he's a weatherman. Oh, the weatherman. Okay. Yeah, but Bill he Murray. encounters the insurance yeah, yeah, yeah. salesman. At first, he's cruel to him. Right. And as the time goes on, he he takes compassion on him. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen that one. And, and this is a good point. I hadn't thought about it in this in this sense. But people often say, "Father, why am I going to confess? I'm probably going to do it again." 
Well, if you're definitely going to do it again, you're not really repentant. You have to at least want to try. But it might take several tries over and over again. That movie, I mean, you see it over. It's not like he changes the first night. It takes dozens, you know. But you're right. From the beginning to the end, it's he's not. I mean, he's the same person, but he's not the same person. Is there as is, is there as much um, to confession that God forgives us that we acknowledge? To ourselves that we have committed a sin that by confessing it we're acknowledging it to ourselves that we know we did something wrong yes and i think that's where the presence of the priest is the most effective not just for the counsel you might get you can say you're sorry for something but if you don't say that in front of somebody else on the one hand you could actually doubt your sincerity later on. On the other hand, if you're really sorry, you're not going to be concerned with the shame of bringing that out publicly. There's something that we feel much deeper when we do, when we say our sins in front of somebody else. Um, some of you might be familiar with the 12 step. Um, AA and all those, yeah. Um, they have a saying that says that we are as sick as our secrets. So if you're an alcoholic, you might say, well, I'm an alcoholic, I'm sick. Nothing I can do about it. And they say, I'm always going to be an alcoholic. <clears throat> but they define the sickness not on still being addicted to alcohol or having that struggle, but is it a secret? Which is why going to the meeting is such an important part of this. I go and I acknowledge just by showing up, I'm an addict. Now, hopefully I haven't had a drink since the last meeting, but you're still an addict. And they go to say, this is who, this is what, what I struggle with. And talking about it in front of other people is, and they, it's even one of the steps, I think it's step four or five, I forget. It is to acknowledge all of your wrongdoings in front of another person. There was this girl, um, Allison. Allison was the sales rep of the furniture company that the Antiochian village bought our camp furniture from. She sold bunk beds and, and that kind of stuff. So we'd see her every year at the, the conventions and she was Jewish and just we'd have a lot of fun. We'd go in and we'd put our orders in and all that and then we'd hang out all of us in a big group going out to dinner and stuff. Um, Later on, actually, she had a dream one time, and in the dream, I won't go into all the details, but she had this revelation from Christ and became a Christian. Um, wow. Yeah. And so when it came time for her to, she was working steps, she did her steps, and she came and she said, I want to I wanna take step four or five, whatever it was. So it, it's just, it's another sign that the power of being outward with acknowledging what's going on inwardly and again if you think of what, what the text is all about it's about what's going on inwardly and it doesn't matter what you say about yourself either you're good or you're bad from your heart i'm gonna read a couple um quotes here um i, I don't think we're gonna get hashi to convert <laughs> well we'll keep trying <laughs> 
At least just keep trying to show who who Christ is. She's the guy that sold us our memorial wall. Oh. oh memorial. <laughs> um, we read a couple quotes and we'll wrap up by 11 here. This idea of uh, the tree being known by its fruit. Uh, and this is about them charging Jesus with being evil for, you know, casting out the demon by the demon. The accusation is against common reason, straining against all the other congruities in these circumstances. They brought no direct charge against his deeds, but only against the one who did them. It is shameless to interpret maliciously. Even more so, it is shameless to make up charges contrary to what everyone could see was happening. You get what he means by that? In other words, it was... What Jesus did was obviously good. Everyone should have known it. They could have known it. They maybe did know it, but they're acting like it's something else going on. Yet note how free Jesus is from contentiousness. He did not simply say, make the tree good and its fruit good. Rather, he silenced them completely, demonstrating his own considerateness and their insolence by saying, in effect, so you are determined to find fault with my deeds? I do not quarrel with this, but I want you to be aware of how inconsistent and contradictory are your charges. For in this way, your motives are transparent. You persist against what is all too clear to everyone else. In this way, your malice is disclosed. So you can get the idea of why he's now going to turn the table. He's not just, in other words, not tit for tat. When he says you brood of vipers, he's not just turning the tables because he's, you know, embarrassed that they said things about him. He's going to be, in a sense, good enough to show them where they've gone off the track. And either they're going to make it right or they're not. Father, what text was that that you were reading from? Um, that's St. John Chrysostom's commentary on um, verse 33. Okay, thank you. By the way, I haven't done this before. Maybe I'll bring it next time right at the end here. Remind me to give you a very good resource that somebody gave me recently that's very helpful. Okay. Um, well, it's 11, so we'll, we'll end it there. Uh, so did you, did you hear about those uh, 40 gold coins that... Um, Israeli um, archaeologists found from the sixth the sixth century AD. No. no. Yeah, check that out. Google that. It's pretty interesting. Interesting. Uh -huh. so we are together, God willing, uh -huh. next week. Um, but not the week after. Our calendar is wrong. Um, I have a clergy retreat for the diocese to attend the 20th. But I'll remind you next week. But next week, God willing, we're here. Okay, great. Thank you, Father. Thank you all. Have a great Thank day. Thank you. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. -bye. Bye.